Hello and welcome everyone. This podcast um, is about the work the BMA has been doing to highlight the day-to-day pressures doctors are facing in the NHS and why we've been lobbying for more funding and resources to make sure that doctors have the support they need to care for patients. Um, My name is Jonathan Ware. I'm the Head of Health Policy at the BMA and I'm joined by three of my colleagues who've been working in this area uh, who I'll let introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Hannah Higgins and I'm a research officer in the health policy team. Hello, I'm Rachel Evans. I'm a senior policy advisor in the health policy team. Hi, I'm Frances Player and I'm a policy advice and support officer in the health policy team. Okay, thanks everyone. Um, So uh, obviously this is an issue that um, really impacts on on doctors' day-to-day working lives and it's something that we hear a lot from from members about the frustrations of not having enough resources to provide the care that they want to provide. So um, Hannah, if I can come to you first, you've been working to highlight the, the day-to-day pressures in the NHS. Um, obviously, at the moment, that's very much being shaped by COVID, but the BMA has been raising concerns about this for, for quite a long time before that, hasn't it? Yeah, so, so we've been keeping an eye on it and been um, very vocal about our concerns about pressures and issues of capacity in the NHS for a long time now. So before COVID hit, we were already in the throes of what was an extremely tough winter for the NHS. Um, It has always been quite standard for the winter to be harder and more pressurised for the NHS, with summer being a bit more quiet and an opportunity to work through waiting lists. Um, But this year, that didn't really happen last summer. The number of long waits in A&E and bed bed occupancy rates stayed very high over summer. There's no kind of summer recovery. And so going into winter, we published a report predicting very long waits in the 2019-20 winter. And the winter was indeed the worst on record. Over one in five people waited over four hours in A&E this December. This was the worst performance against the government's four-hour wait target since its inception nearly 16 years ago. Um, A lack of investment in the NHS bed stock meant that more than half of trusts had average daily occupancy exceeding 95%, and hundreds of thousands of patients waited hours in hospital corridors, temporary trolley beds, with some BMA members telling us that patients were dying in these conditions. And so um, separate from that, we also saw the overall size of the waiting list for treatment climb and climb and climb to about 4.4 million, the largest it has been on record. Um, So overall, we've seen this kind of slow decline in the standard of care that doctors are able to give their patients due to resource constraints. Um, This is not what doctors or patients want. And so because of this, we've been lobbying for more beds for the NHS in recent years. And um, Simon Stevens has recently acknowledged this is a necessary um, thing for the NHS. So that has been a kind of small win for us. Okay, great. So the um, so yeah, so going into the, the the COVID crisis, I guess we were um, we were already in quite a difficult position, and the BMA had been very vocal in highlighting that. Um, so what's the situation now? Um, uh, given we've we've had the first wave of the um, the, the infection, um, so what what are pressures looking like at the moment, and what's the BMA doing to to push for? Uh, for, for those to be addressed. Yeah, so so as a consequence of these pressures and the kind of context that the system found itself in, um, a system that was essentially operating almost at full capacity, um, the arrival of the pandemic meant that a really large effort had to take place to reorganise the packet of care provided by the NHS so that it wouldn't become overwhelmed by an influx of COVID patients. Um, so large numbers of patients were discharged, private sector capacity was seized, and a large amount of supposedly non-urgent electives were postponed or cancelled. 
And so to be fair, a large amount of capacity was created um, and intensive care did not have to be rationed to COVID patients um, the way it did in other countries ahead of us in the epidemic curve. Uh, however, due to this reorganization effort, we now see that a huge backlog of care has accumulated behind the scenes. So we published analysis covered by the Sunday Times just over a month ago, estimating that in the first few months of the pandemic in England, there are up to 1.5 million fewer elective admissions than would usually be expected, up to 2.6 million fewer first outpatient attendances, up to 286,000 fewer urgent cancel referrals. And so these patients and their symptoms and their conditions aren't going away and they will likely worsen. So this hidden impact of COVID hasn't quite been captured yet by the waiting list size, since less referrals to the list have been, ha have been happening. But we have seen in June that the average wait for consultant referred treatment rose to over four months. Um, this is the longest wait time ever we've seen in the NHS. And the number of people waiting over a year for treatment rose to 50,000. This is the longest number of people waiting this long since February 2009. Um, and that's about 46 times as many people as were waiting last June. Um, and so it's quite important to note that this was, this was avoidable. So whilst most countries had to ration um, care in some way, if we had had a higher bed stock per head and less workforce shortages going into pandemic, then there would have been more cushioning in the system to deal with a crisis like this. And so going into the winter ahead, this is extremely concerning for doctors that we speak to. It's unclear how these managed waiting lists will be worked through in a system that last winter, without a pandemic, was operating at full capacity and seeing record long wait times normalised. And so we've surveyed members a lot on this to see how they feel about it and to try and publicise the voice of doctors. Um, and so 70% of respondents in our most recent survey found it highly or fairly unlikely that NHS England's autumn targets for levels of activity will be met. Um, so we don't really feel reassured about the level of investment and resource provided to reach these targets going into winter. Um, this is unfair on doctors and on patients. And, um, you know, all our members want to do is be able to provide a high standard of timely care. Um, but the way the system is currently set up, they just can't do that. Okay, thanks, Hannah. Um, so, obviously, uh, a big challenge for for the NHS um, over the next few months. Then, clearly, one of the, you know the under the main underlying cause of um, of these these pressures, as you said, is um, the fundamental lack of resource um, and lack of funding over many years. So, um, Rachel, I know you've been leading on this area. So, um, what can you tell us about the overall funding picture over recent years and how that's impacted on on the ability of doctors to do their jobs? Yeah, so um, for a long time now, the BMA has been highlighting the need for funding and resources for the NHS and how it's been majorly underfunded for a number of years. Um, for example, if you look at sort of how we compare to other countries, the UK typically spends a lower proportion of GDP on health compared to you know, the leading EU countries, particularly France and Germany. And looking at the latest figures, they show that the UK spent 10.3% um, of GDP on health last year, whereas France spent 11% and Germany even higher as spending 11.7%. So we are lacking behind um, some of our um, counterparts in Europe. Um, if you also look at the historical sort of spend in, in health in the UK, Back in the times of the Blair and Brown governments, um, the average funding growth in health spend was about 6%. Um, whereas now, or under the current government, particularly before COVID, 
the NHS funding was growing at an average of a rate of 1.6%. So it's much lower. So we have been struggling over the past few years of of getting the funding that we need. Sure. Um, and how has that um, how has that changed more recently then um, with the advent of of the COVID pandemic? Yeah. So I think if you look a bit further back, I think our message and obviously every a lot of others' message was starting to get across to government. And they did announce a funding boost um, for the NHS back in 2018, where they said they were putting in 20.5 billion um, over five years. However, we still feel you know greater increases are needed, and this funding didn't actually cover many aspects of healthcare, such as public health or, or capital funding that's needed. So we're calling for greater increases for the whole NHS to help keep up with demand and modernise services and estates so they're fit for purpose. Um, More recently, we've been calling for a long-term funding increase of 4.1% a year and have flagged this in our responses to government, um, particularly our response to the budget earlier this year. And if you actually do apply that, um, had annual spending increases been maintained at 4.1% rather than the 1.6% that we've been seeing, um, over the past 10 years, the NHS in England would actually be 37 billion better off today. So we will maintain this this funding call for better increases in in health funding going forward. Um, As you mentioned, COVID, obviously the funding landscape has changed quite a bit. So far, the government has provided an extra 9.6 billion to the NHS to cope with the impact of the pandemic. Um, obviously, this is is greatly welcome, um, but it's really important that it's not just a one-off funding increase. The impact of COVID and the backlog of services are going to remain, so it's vital that government do continue to provide similar funding boosts, at least in the short term, to cover these continued costs. And that's something that we will be calling for in our ongoing work, particularly coming up very soon. There's the comprehensive spending review in autumn, and we will be putting a submission forward calling for this and ensuring that there's more funding going into public health, social care, capital and estates and things like that. Okay, great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, so finally, um, I want to bring you in, Francis, because one of the uh, consequences of of the historic underfunding that, that Rachel was just talking about um, is that during the COVID crisis, um, the government has been quite reliant on private sector uh, support um, and, and outsourcing of key elements of um, of the government's response. So uh, I know you've been leading a lot of work on that in the last few months. Um, so what has the BMA been doing to to uncover what's been going on here and, and highlight the problem? Yeah, so just to begin, I guess it's important to say that um, since the 2015 government spending review, the public health grant in England was subjected to severe funding cuts, which by 2020 to 2021 are estimated to amount to a £1 billion real-term cut relative to the 2015 and 2016 levels. So there's no doubt that the government's reliance on private firms during the pandemic is being used to fill these gaps created by this sustained underinvestment that we're seeing in public health and the NHS more broadly. So we know that the BMA has been lobbying against outsourcing for many years, 
that since the pandemic, members have been coming forward and telling us that they're worried about the level and nature of the contracts handed out to large firms um, in really important areas such as testing and PPE logistics. So there have been concerns that poor outcomes and value for money are being delivered from these firms, for example, um, with the testing centres that are being run by Deloitte. So there have been delays in processing test samples um, and a lack of proper system for relaying timely and detailed information with GPs and local authorities, despite the commitment that has been laid out in the pillar two of the government's testing strategy to link data from these privately run centres with patient medical records. So, I mean, this missing information limits the usefulness of the test results and understanding the spread of the virus within a general community um, and therefore has been putting public health at severe risk. So we know that the Treasury has reported that £10 billion was spent um, on the test and trace strategy and a further £5 billion um, has been committed into extending these contracts with the private sector. So we need to be asking serious questions about the quality of the services provided and, and the value for money that we've been seeing. We also need to see a substantial and sustained increase in funding for the NHS and public health to take on more work so there's no need to repeatedly run to the private sector. Um, all these issues we've highlighted uh, in our recently published report called the role of private outsourcing in the COVID-19 response and we've planned an up-and-coming webinar that will be held at the end of September um, and this will aim to highlight our work on privatisation and more specifically in relation to the response and recovery from COVID. Great, thank you, Francis. So um, we're going to close there. Uh, hopefully that's given um, members listening uh, a bit of an insight into uh, some of the work that the BMA is doing in this really important area to make a difference um, to the lives of doctors. We'd really like to hear from members um, if you have views on, on any of the issues that we've been discussing in this podcast. Um, so you can contact me directly. It's jware, J-W-A-R-E, at bma.org.uk. Um, so do drop me an email um, if, uh, if you'd like to be put in touch with uh, those working on these projects. So thanks, everybody, for your contributions. That's it. Thanks.